you know, you're better off fishing those riffles or that shallow, fast water where there's probably a feeding fish. There might only be one in the riffle and there might be 10 in the bottom of the hole, but you're going to catch that one and you might not catch a single one of those 10. So, My favorite saying is we're catching these little fish so you're ready when the big one comes. Yes. You got your hook set down, you got your cast down, you got your presentation down, got a little bit of fight in some of them. And you're yeah. bringing them to the net. You know when to raise the rod tip. You know when to raise your arm to get it up. You know to stop stripping line when you get to the knot. All those little yeah. things. Those those smaller fish prepare us for those bigger fish. Three, two. I looked through the podcast group and I said, hey, give me some questions that you want to make sure that I ask on finding large wild trout in stocked waters. As I put it out there on the group, podcast group, Jim came back and said, well, how do I even tell the difference between a wild trout and a stocked trout if I'm fishing stocked waters? So I guess that's kind of the first question there. How do I tell the difference between wild trout and stocked trout if I'm fishing stocked waters? Uh, As far as telling between wild and and stocked really comes down to three things for me and it's fins noses and then colors and really in that order as well you know so you see a lot of the the fins are either rubbed off or gone or rounded or whatever you know like on a rainbow you'd have for the tail on a wild fish they come to those crisp points at the end on the tail and then on a stalker a lot of times you notice they're they're like a little bit rounded off on the tail but that can be a tough one to see Really, the biggest giveaway is the peck fins, and basically, right. it's if they have. <laughs> do them they or have not, both? You know, so you know, do they have both, and are they both there? And like very full, is the bone going all the way through? Because even if they have big fins, um, but you can tell they're kind of a little bit messed up. I mean, when a fish gets really big, even a wild fish, you know, they get beat up. But no, they'll they'll have big full fins. They'll have a big tall dorsal that'll have a perfect straight bone on the front of that dorsal. And then for us, a lot of times, the dorsal will have either a white or a bright orange spot right on the top of it. So you'll have this like fire orange little color right on the top of the dorsal. And I always try to highlight that because that's a that's a hallmark. What about the nose? And I, I've got I'm kind of I'm tracking with you, hundred percent here. What about the nose? Uh, so the nose, the nose is usually rubbed off or raw, you know, it looks like it's been basically, I've had people try to tell me it looks like they've been digging under boulders before, but in reality, what it is, is they've been swimming into the side of the concrete tank. So they'll just have like a big scar or worn up nose. The only exception to that would be if you catch one with like a big kite jaw yeah, on right. it sometimes some of those big males, you know, they'll have like a kite that'll be worn out a little bit. And that's usually you know, from redding and spawning and all that. And you got to be careful about the beat up pieces that you were talking about around spawning time. A lot of times they'll be a little rougher, you know, the fish, especially the Browns, when they get in there and really get going during spawning seasons, not that they're, so here they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily spawning per se. They're going through all the motions of spawning, but they're not necessarily spawning, meaning they're, they're pairing up, they're, they're, digging reds they're doing everything they they're squirting eggs they're doing all that stuff but it's not necessarily taking Mm -hmm. 
So when they're when they're you know three or four males around a female, the males you know they get a little rough. The female gets beat up a little bit too. So there's a, that's a different look than just straight out of the hatchery truck or straight out of you know where wherever they came from. For here, it's the hatchery. I assume it's probably the hatchery down there as well. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. So definitely that dorsal, <laughs> the fish that have been in there in a long time or they're wild here it would be they would be the holdover types they're they're not quite as beat up looking their dorsals looking a little better they don't look like free willy the dorsal looks like free willy on a freshly stocked trout a lot of, a bigger freshly stocked trout a lot of times there's a very big distinguishable difference between fish that have been beat up spawning and redding a lot of times versus fish that come out of the hatchery a lot of times it's size, you know, if you catch a fish that's like 20 inches long, 22 inches long, that's beat up and it's got, you know, kind of messed up fins. A lot of times, one, that front bone on like the pec fins and the dorsal fin will still be fairly intact, even if their fins a little beat up. And then they, you know, their tails usually, that might be a little ragged, but you can still tell that's a little bit bigger size. It's not that perfectly rounded kind of deal that you get from being sanded off in the hatchery a lot of times a lot of times it's a little wider definitely looks a little more crisp right with a big paddle tail on there yep from high atop the world headquarters of southeastern fly this is the southeastern fly podcast thanks for stopping in and giving us a listen feel free to share this with your friends and fishing partners unless you want to keep the ideas to yourself most of all please subscribe or follow depending on which podcatcher you're on remember we have the podcast by southeastern fly facebook group they help us with the direction and our questions. They had input on every single question that we're going to talk about today. If you find value in the podcast, please drop by the southeasternfly.com store. Explore the merch. It's what's making this podcast go as far as being able to pay for everything. We've got hats and t-shirts and, and stickers and some new products in, are in design right now. Uh, we've had good reviews on the products that are, have gone out there. Thanks to everybody that's already supported the show through their purchases. And uh, we just want to thank everybody that comes in here and supports us. I get a lot of a lot of emails, a lot of folks, believe it or not, on the on the water that I talk to. And they're like, hey, well, listen to the podcast. It's great. We appreciate everybody that tries to get the word out for us and does get the word out for us. That's one of the things that I've always wanted to do here is make sure that we give back to the fly fishing community through doing these podcasts. Uh, doing these different episodes on fly fishing in the south because we've got some great resources down here and today is no different this is going to be a great episode today we're talking to a guide who fishes the Tacoa river the soakwe nuntutla creek in north georgia and the tuckasegee river in north carolina he guides for stock trout wild trout smallies and stripers and i was cruising through his website they supply everything you need for a day on the water and they specialize in a fun day on the water. And I kind of got that vibe from his website. So let's welcome to the podcast the owner of Bowman Fly Fishing, Daniel Bowman. Daniel, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're on uh, Instagram. I found you there. You're on bowmanflyfishing.com. Found that. Uh, and you're on Facebook as well. Is that right? Yeah, there's three platforms. So you're pretty much on all the normal media outlets. Normal media outlets is kind of a, a loose term. I don't know if there is such a thing as a normal <laughs> social media outlet. But anyway, you're there, and, and you can be found on any of those. So Daniel and I have talked before, uh, just before the podcast. We've just been talking. I guess we've been talking guide stuff and, and fishing and, and right. fishing around campfires and fishing out of boats and 
and the social aspect of it and then we've kind of really started drilling down in into the fish themselves and techniques and that sort of thing so i thought i probably better start this thing so we don't miss any good information for anything that first question as we were talking about you were talking about wild fish uh and and i guess in middle tennessee we're talking more holdover uh, fish but really it kind of it kind of comes to the same thing where they stop eating for here for for middle tennessee where they stop eating trout chow that sort of thing after they come out of the hatchery and they turn over to bugs and then they turn over sometimes to to smaller fish start getting that calcium out of the different types of forage fish and that sort of thing and they start building bone and that sort of thing so we're kind of talking two different names i guess for fish that we're talking about wild versus stock but really the same kind of the same definition you're looking for something that's eating just a little bit different than the one that just just showed up in the river out of nowhere correct yeah there'd be a lot of similarities between what you call holdover fish and then a wild or stream-borne trout for sure you know especially when it comes to diet right i think that there is you'll see some distinctions between the two but a lot of times even you know even i'll have a, a difficult time sometimes actually distinguishing what's what especially when you know we alluded a little bit when we started to when we were talking before the start of the podcast to talking about some of the browns and how they look as far as their fins uh when they're redding and you know how that can kind of be similar similar to a, a, a wild fish and a lot of the holdovers especially with the browns a lot of the holdovers and the wild fish can take on a lot of the same similarities but there will be some differences for sure as your fishing goes on you get more and more time on the water you start seeing more and more fish you can actually start picking out those subtle differences and sometimes they almost become glaring like, oh, I know what this is. As I, as I was looking through the Facebook group questions, and we had some really good questions here that they'll be able to spur a lot of discussion. One of the questions, and Jim asked this question about finding large wild trout. This came from the Facebook group. What types of water should anglers look for to separate themselves from the stock trout and concentrate more on that wild fish? Where should an angler fo- focus? There's two big bodies of water that you should look at. One would be mountain streams and the other one would be tailwaters for us in the southeast. So you've got your big freestone rivers for sure and they can definitely hold wild fish. The hard part there is that it's going to be a lot lower chance for it for the most part, speaking from my experience and around us, just because you run into water temperature issues in a lot of the freestones right. through here. And and that's the biggest the biggest thing there for sure. With tailwaters, you know, you've got consistent cold water and a lot of food. Granted, a lot of it's small or baitfish, you know, but um, you've got consistent water temperatures. And then obviously with the mountains, you've got just such a nursery habitat up there in the mountain streams, as well as cold water and typically a whole plethora of bugs and food and everything for them up there in the mountains as well. So I would say if wild trout is what you're after, look to the mountain and cold water and then look to tailwaters as well. So if I'm, if I'm up in the mountain and the West is fighting this right now, it's hot out there. Mm-hmm. And everybody that I know out there is really crying the blues. And I, this is the one year that we were not going out there. You, you alluded to a little bit about the temperature in the South and I guess on those those streams those mountain streams is there a time where you have to cut off and say i'm not going up there or or is it pretty consistent cool water up there where you can fish it varies stream to stream pretty drastically especially for us you know you look at something like a a great example of this is nuntula and soakley river and this is why you see way more wild fish in nuntula creek than you do in the soakley river and it's because the soakley is coming off the south side of the mountains so flowing into the chattahoochee and then 
the Nuntula is coming off the north side and it's flown into the headwaters of the Tacoa right there. And because of those two, the Soquis is getting a lot more direct sunlight on the south side and warms up a lot faster. Right. So we'll actually quit fishing the Soqui most years. I would say by the end of June, for sure. You know, sometimes it's middle June. Sometimes we get away with it in July. For the most part on the Soqui, it's when the nights stop getting, I say, below about 67 or 68. That's when we see the water temperatures really get up. And that's when we usually start laying off of them. We have had years on Noon Tula where we have had to stop fishing in August or maybe early September. But that's usually a question of flow. Usually even when you show up when you in the you know heart of the summer. Uh, you'll have still 65 degree water. So it's, it's still good. It's on the getting on the warmer end for over there. Usually 60 is about where you want to see it and where it normally is. But we've seen it at 65, maybe even a hair over that. But you'll see it get really low and you just have a dissolved oxygen issue is what it'll get into over there. So usually it's a it's a a decision that's made not just by us and our guides, but it's made by a lot of the landowners over there. And it's kind of a collective thing that we all talk about because you'll notice fish get really hard to revive and uh, we'll stay off of there. Right. So let's break down some water types. Give me maybe your, your top three water types on the mountain streams, Nutula, that sort of thing, that sort of freestone. What are your top three favorite water types there? Yeah, for sure. My favorite water type to see in those mountain streams is definitely the riffles. I will always, I'm a big fan of shallow water, shallow water riffles, especially when they're, you know, going through and eating actively. You see them getting that shallow water, a lot of oxygen, a lot of bugs, a lot of food moving around them. I always say too, especially when you're, when you're hunting wild fish, you, the less time they have to make a decision, the better. Yes. I would say you would, you know, that, that those, you know, you don't want them to have to analyze your, your bugs too hard, you know, especially if you're tying your own, you like for those to sit right by there and let them grab them, you know? So, you know, but it just, it's a, it's a lot of feeding lies, a lot of feeding holds for those fish. So they don't always say it's like living on the treadmill. They're going to burn a lot of calories sitting there. So they got to be able to eat a lot more to come out ahead. So the riffles are my favorite. Next, I would say eddies in fast water would be a big one. So oh, just yeah. little pockets. Yeah, yeah, little holds off to the side. This is a good spot when we're talking about streamers, terrestrials. Nymphing's good. It's a really, you know, that kind of water is great if you're high sticking or euro nymphing or something like that. But usually that's more of a streamer, dry fly kind of hold, but always a great place to find a fish. Um, and then I would say third and kind of, going towards my not as quite as favorite would be the uh, the deeper pools yeah they hold a lot of fish there's like always going to be fish in them and a lot of times you can see them but they're really tough to get to eat a lot of times so i try not to spend a whole lot of time in those big deep pools just because they end up being more time wasters and sucking in with being able to see fish or looking great oh. when in reality you know you're better off fishing those riffles or that shallow fast water where there's probably a feeding fish there might only be one in the riffle and there might be 10 in the bottom of the hole but you're going to catch that one and you might not catch a single one of those 10. So. I think in the holes I tried. So I, we lived in Knoxville for a while, which is where I really learned to fish wild streams. Not that I was real great at it, but I could, I could catch fish up there uh, and it would, would do pretty good from time to time. But I spent a lot of time at the head of the pool, a little time mm -hmm. at the tail of the pool. And when I finally could wean myself off of fishing for the 10 fish I could see, like you're talking about, yeah, right. I split that time between front, you know, the head and the, and the tail, 
leaning more toward the head of the pool because there's always some some water coming in there that you can fish and mm-hmm. i like to say if the if the fish are going to eat in a pool they're probably going to eat at the head or the tail and then there's a small chance that you can get them at current you know going by a rock or something like that if you can find right. the current in them there's always current in them somewhere but you know in the deeper pools it's sometimes it's hard to get to and I will say too, real quick, touching on the point of like differentiating from the stock to wild ones in this particular kind of water as well. Uh, you tend to find a lot more wild fish in that faster water as well. I always say the wild yeah. fish are usually the athletes of the group. So <laughs> they're usually hanging out up there in that fast water Yep. and, you know, fish in the faster water and those, those, you know, p- pockets and pools and everything like, you know, in the midst of fast water. It's typically a little bit better place to focus for those wild trout as well. If it, you're in a if you're in a stream that has both, might have some fresh stalkers in it. I would say, and you'd probably agree, nine times out of ten, they're going to congregate in those deeper pools right through there. Yes, and they'd be the ones you'd get out of there. Because if there's a big wild fish in the bottom of a big deep pool, chances are he's waiting until it gets dark or something like that. You know, he's not quite he's not feeding so. Exactly. And those, so the pools probably tend to look a little more like a hatchery run. Yeah, and they'll be fishing and they'll be wild fishing them too, you know, especially you talk about the Smokies, they'll be wild oh, fishing yeah. those pools up through there. But, you know, I think that, yeah, it just takes less effort. It's easier to feed. You don't have to be quite as quick or, you know, on the money to be able to grab those bugs as they go past their, their heads there in those deep pools. So if they're, I mean, let's talk about the riffle just a minute. Uh, and Jim, Jim also kind of touched on this question. What's the best way to fight a fish? And let's just take it out of a riffle because that's probably the most action-packed way to catch a fish. I would say when you're talking about fighting a big wild fish, there's you definitely have to touch on gear a little bit. You know, I'm not a huge gear guy, um, but I always encourage everybody, especially when we're going after big wild fish, to leave their click reels at home most of the time when you're going after big wild fish you know it's great if you're in the smokies it's great if you're way up on the mountains but that's where it's worth the money on a good trout reel is having a smooth drag because you're fishing white tippets typically in fast water and you got to be able to let that drag do the work for you so that's that's number one for sure Number two is that you got to think about it directionally and you got to think about never letting that fish really take a break during the fight. So that's always the thing that kills me is when I'm coaching somebody through fighting a big fish and it's about to get there, it just comes out of the fast water or whatever, we're about to get it to the net. And then it's kind of like we get, take it a little easier on them, quit pulling on them quite as much, right. you know, let them kind of, kind of sit. They'll sit there in that water and they'll recover and then it's right back over again. So that's the biggest thing is keeping constant pressure. I'm always a big fan of steering that fish in the opposite direction of where he's trying to go, pulling that hook back into his mouth. I move downstream with the fish a lot. If he runs downstream on me, I typically don't stand in one spot to try to land a fish because you get a bad angle on him. You know, you never want to have that fish way, you know, it's always like that. It puts a you know pit in the bottom of your stomach going through there when you see that big fish get even, you know, 20 yards downstream of you, 15 yards downstream of you, and you're just hoping that that hook holds when he's dead down below because that's always a tough angle to land a fish at and keep a hook in him. You're doing inventory at the same time of there's a log, there's a rock, he could go here, she could go there. You're trying to do all this mental exercise in your head at this, all at the same time. Right. And the whole time, usually you're fishing, let's say, 5X or maybe <laughs> even 6X. If it was a day like today, you're fishing 6X, 
and you've got your drag set real light. So you're basically just encouraging them. You're not pulling them anywhere with success. Right. You're just, yes. you're just trying to like kind of get him to move one way or other a little bit. So you're there. And I always say, you always have to watch the left hand. And I tell everybody to ride the bull, you know, get that left hand out of your way, let that reel work and just kind of steer them the best you can keep them out of there. Because I would much rather see somebody lose a fish up underneath something around a log up against a rock or something like that then grab the line and break them off. And some guys would go the other way. Some guys are real big fans of trying to steer fish out of stuff, push that line right to its breaking point. Yeah. Um, I, I just believe that a lot of times you get lucky. They come out of that stuff. They come back out of it. You're not going to get lucky grabbing a reel with 6X. No. <laughs> That's an unlucky, yeah. unlucky situation there. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be gone. So. <laughs> So you touched on let's, you touched on uh, a gear just a little bit. So let's talk about the types of rigs that maybe an angler should be prepared to use when they're hunting l- these larger wild fish. Because that's really, honestly, that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the smaller wild fish on this particular episode. But if you could explain your streamer rig for us and the nymph rig, I'm interested in those dry fly techniques. I don't get to fish dry mm-hmm. as a ton. We fished some yesterday on, on a tailwater when when really they were eating something so they were they ate the knot on a leader on a a typical (laughs) leader so i mean they were eating some tiny stuff yeah and then i also definitely want to spend a little bit of time on terrestrials trip asks what types of rigs should an angler be prepared to use when they're hunting hunting these larger wild fish let's start with your stringer streamer rig first uh and we're going to get into your favorite flies in a minute yeah so streamer rig wise you're looking at really two distinct ways to fish streamers for big wild fish this is going to kind of tilt towards a little bit more the boat guys guys who have drift boats or rafts or a little bit that kind of deal because it's going to be a high water and a low water streamer rig so a low water streamer rig is really the big thing there is you're using a floating line or an intermediate line a lot of times i really like an intermediate line because i like to fish a lot of weightless flies right but you know on a six weight typically maybe a seven weight um going through there throwing still fairly short leaders especially on an intermediate line i typically only fish about a four to four and a half foot leader depending on the fly i'm using but most of the time it's four feet and it's going to be a bigger four to five inch fly going after a, a big fish even if i'm fishing on low water if it's not a sparkle minnow or something like that you know like a right. single hook you yeah. know that kind of kind of deal um but typically you're looking at a bud of about like a 25 pound fluoro and then a tippet of about 15 um, to the fly and then going through and just fishing the banks a lot of times with that fishing the holes even fishing the runs too because like going back to it those big fish will live on those those runs and they're still going to be aggressive even after small fishing there a lot of times so there's not a whole lot of science behind the low water streamer rig it's kind of sticking with it going going for it you know you got to find a a truly aggressive fish and a mean fish that's going to eat a big meal like that especially a wild fish in a typical flow situation you know whether it's a mountain stream that's kind of at its normal level not after a big rain or tailwater on typical low flows it's gonna take a little bit of hunting to do and you're definitely gonna have to get lucky with it a little bit but working those flies in a very slow manner, letting them breathe, letting them float, even on that slower. That's why I don't use sinking lines on low water is because you can't fish that fly and suspend it enough with a sinking line on, on low water without it getting caught on the bottom. Yeah, you really have to move it so fast to keep it off the bottom that it's almost ineffective a lot of times. 
Yeah, a lot of times you're just getting hung the whole time. Yeah, so, right. No, you know, if I'm going to fish something, it's going to be an intermediate, but a lot of times it's going to be a floating line. So, but kind of switching gears, looking at the high water streamer rig, that's where I'm usually throwing an eight weight, you know, and I'll throw an eight weight with a 300 grain, typically full sink line, or at least something. I'm a big fan of having at least a 25 to 20 foot head on a sink line when I'm fishing high water and fishing right on the banks, especially for us. Like the Tacoa is a great example. We get, have about three feet of like level change when they generate. Right. So those fish will move out of the center of the river and get up on those banks. And you'll be catching them a lot of times out of people's grass or around their docks and that kind of stuff. So really? huh. I'll be, Oh yeah. You know, catching them out of the grass for sure. Catching them off trees, a lot of stuff that's dry a lot of times. So they move right up there on that stuff. And I'll use the same thing. Four foot leader, still 15 pounds, that 300 grain. I'll throw it right up on the bank and then I'll strip it probably six or eight times, something like that. Not working it all the way back necessarily, but working that pretty fast coming off of there. The big thing is using your rod tip, working that really letting that fish feel that fly. And then same thing like I had on the low waters, let that fly suspend and breathe. I'm a big fan of game changers, uh, you know, and we'll get into flies obviously going forward, but uh, game changers, a lot of drunken disorderlies, swinging D's, that kind of stuff. Flies that really don't have a lot of weight in them, but spin well and really have a lot of side to side movement. Cause I grew up being a bass guy. So I see, I like to, I like to think of like a fluke. Yep. Or like a suspending jerk bait, you know? So I want something that they're going to kill on that turn. They're going to get that sideways T-bone look at it and they're going to come up and kill it on that turn. So that's the biggest thing is uh, when you look at high water going through there, fly selection's big, but I would almost argue that presentation is going to be bigger. And I think there's a, a popular idea around like now of uh, streamer fishing at high water is uh, just go and cast. And if you cast a thousand times, you catch a fish yeah that's yeah there's some truth in that if you go and do it enough you'll probably get one but really my goal when i have somebody in the boat is you know i don't want to go out there eight hours and just cast 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 and hope that we have something to eat there's definitely a way to do it where you go out there and fish and you should be catching fish or moving fish most of the most trips or every time or you know there's a way to improve your odds going through there on how you work that and it makes a huge difference you still yeah. knock on a lot of doors i like to say we're knocking on doors today you still mm-hmm. knock on a yeah. lot of doors it's not like you're just okay in two minutes we're going to cast right here you know yeah. you're still going to fish a lot of things but knowing what you're looking for as far as structure uh yeah reading the banks some you're talking about reading the banks looking you know coming off of grass and off a of blowdown stuff like that all that's right. super important you might spend a little more time on certain banks I like I like mud. Right. I'm I'm a fan of mud because yep. I think the brown trout just get up there and lean up against it. You know, maybe drink. I like to say maybe drink a milkshake because I think the yeah. water next to mud slows down just a little bit, mm-hmm. and they feel like okay, I can just lay here against this, and you know, maybe this is me. You know, talking about a trout with the you know IQ of six or whatever the whatever we think <laughs> yeah. they have. Oh, yeah. So, but mud, I do like mud. I like that sort of thing. I like current breaks one thing that i think that and, and i'm not steering stealing your thunder I, I do think this is important is scouting out on low water will let you know where you where you're likely to catch a fish on high water i think that's very important no yeah no doubt that's 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 definitely true you know 
And uh, I will say that too. I'm going to touch on what you hit with uh, talking about, all right, well, you're not going to cast here in two minutes or whatever. You're not going to tell somebody to just hang on to it and ride for a while because you got to keep knocking on those doors. I will say that a lot of times how I will approach it is I would rather go through and knock on the right doors than try to rap on everybody's door. Yep. So I will go, go through and I'll try to coach guys one to always have a downstream mindset, always have your eyes looking downstream so that you're prepared for what's coming. And I'll go through and I always use the analogy for a lot of, you know, a lot of guys that have shot like, you know, shot skeeter trap through the woods, that kind of thing. When you have like a moving shot going through trees, something like that, you always kind of pick your lane that you shoot at. So I'll look at like a piece of water. Let's say it's a big eddy on the bank or it's a muddy bank or something like that. I'll say you don't want to shoot your shot before you get to where you need to be or after it really. But a lot of times it's you get geared up getting close to a good spot and you try to go through and make that longer cast than you need to, or <laughs> maybe the best way to work a, a work a streamer a lot of times is to get where you're actually casting slightly quartered back upstream. So you can work that fly downstream through an eddy or through a slow bank down through there and stick it close to that bank for a longer period of time. And when I'll do that, I'll always try to tell everybody, say, wait, don't cast it just yet. Don't try to sneak in two casts where you should make one because what you end up doing is making two mediocre casts and won't catch a fish instead of making that one cast where you're giving the fish the look coming through there. So I'll go through and be pretty picky about where we cast, how we cast, and really setting up angles because a lot of times it's all about your angles that you're getting working that big streamer. So you don't want to get somebody all riled up like we're going to, and I've done this before, so I know exactly what I'm doing. I get, all right, we're going to fish this log down here. Be ready. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. I'm ready. You sure? Yep. Okay. Here we go. Give it just another, by the time we get there, dude, so worked up that he can't even make the cast, you know? And right. so I've kind of tried to start leaning off of that a little bit and I might time it myself and say, all right, they're fishing, they're casting and it's taking about, you know, this much distance to get back to the boat. So maybe have them make a cast right before that really, really good spot. Mm-hmm. and then say it's just another normal cast all right well let's hit that bank right there and right you've done all the math try to do as much math as you possibly can in your head so that mm-hmm. they're dialed in when they get there because there ain't nobody on the river that wants somebody to catch a fish worse than david as long as they're in my boat <laughs> yeah. you know, even the person fishing usually doesn't want to want to catch that fish as bad as i want them to catch that fish oh and, yeah you know yeah. sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't I- I think I believe like floating the floating the river streamer fishing, especially during the winter when the streamer bites really on, I'll go through there. And I, I, I believe in a lot of spots that we should catch a 20 plus inch brown yep. in like every single one of these holes, if we do it right. Yep. And I've been, it's, I've been out there days before where, you know, and a couple of guys, a guy with us, Jason and Kyle, they can attest to this. We've been out there before and we've moved like 15, 16 Browns all over 20 inches going down through there. And places that we didn't even think would have a fish. And it's because we went through and got the right angles and, you know, all brought our A game for whatever reason yeah. and just really got through there. And it was re- in reality, it's probably one of those just magical days that happens once in a lifetime or, you know, through there. But even still, I think it's that mentality that you got to have of looking for a fish behind every log. I would say a, a, a good streamer fishing is kind of an internal optimist. You know, you're always expecting something around the next bend when in reality you might catch two fish all day maybe one or maybe none but the ones that you catch are going to be worth catching that's for sure we talked about knocking on doors with streamers i want to spend some time on terrestrials because there again a lot of times you're knocking on doors 
hitting a place that you think is going to be good, high opportunity, high value target in that particular piece of water, dropping that terrestrial in there, maybe lobbing it in there almost like a, I like to say like a softball. So you got a big open, if you can, you got a big open, open your loop up and let it just drop and, and splat the water. I love to see a terrestrial that hits the water and bounces just a little bit you know is it Mm -hmm. you know what i'm talking about if you've ever seen it you know what i'm talking about and if you if you haven't seen it it's worth watching because that bug will come out of the air it'll hit the water and it'll kind of almost like it bounces it's like a a kid bouncing on a bed a little bit you know you throw them up and let them bounce on the bed and they bounce up a little bit and then they just kind of start settling right the right bugs will do that same thing so we knock on doors a lot. We use bugs that do that sort of thing. I do like one that rides in the film just a little bit, you know, like down in the film. I don't like those high, high riders because mm-hmm. uh, that I haven't seen a bug that really rides real high uh, no. <laughs> on any of the on, on any of the waters I fish. And somebody's out there going, "Well, every bug I see out here in this state is, you know, okay." I get it. You know. Right. We all know that guy. So what what about y'all on terrestrials? Let's spend some time on terrestrials and let's hit let's hit your tailwaters down there and then let's come back to mountain streams. Yeah, so for terrestrials around us, it's really well one, it's big on time of year, which is everywhere too, you right. know. Um but I, I will hit on that is that September is probably my favorite. August is really good. We're in it now in July, and it will even start in June sometimes. But really, it's a August September kind of deal. Usually, a lot of our other hatches have stocked, and I honestly have a very scientific method of of uh, determining whether or not the terrestrial fishing is good. And it's I walk through the grass and see if there's grasshoppers jumping from my feet. Really? And if I see that, yeah, that's usually what I'll do. Is yeah, I'll nobody walk. does that. No, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No. And I never grab one and throw one in and just see what happens, you know, <laughs> you know, no, that's uh that's usually my, my, my approach to it. But usually when they're out and it's warmed up and we've got a lot of the hoppers going on for us, it usually centers around beetles a little bit more beetles and ants. Uh-huh. I'm a big fan of fishing beetles under trees though. So looking at our tailwaters, it's still fishing a lot of those same areas where those fish are. The hard part with the tailwater is that a lot of times, at least for us, we have some runs fish sit on the bank. And yeah, you always have that. The rivers are all different as far as where fish sit and all that kind of good stuff. But it's whenever you have fish that naturally hold underneath those trees and branches or just downstream from those trees and branches that you can kind of pop one in there on top of them, especially in a, in a riffle you know, where you have that sound of it hitting, it's over their head and it's going past them and they got to grab it. That's always the magic key for us, especially on the tailwaters, you know, is to be able to splat that down on them. And you are, you're knocking on doors, especially when they're generating or high water or whatever. You're always knocking on doors, going through and hitting eddies on the bank, hitting eddies around wood. You can't be afraid to lose flies when you're fishing terrestrials, that's for sure, because you're going to lose a lot of them. Um, but low water, a lot of times I'm fishing a terrestrial, almost as a dry dropper sometimes. Right. Uh, but we will have days where it's like every fish comes up and looks at that terrestrial and then you drop, take those droppers off there and you notice you start having a lot more fish actually come through and, you know, follow through on the eat. So we will go through that where we're just really splatting that on the bank and going through and just fishing a terrestrial going after that big bite. Cause it is the same kind of thing, like a streamer. I would loop that like 
terrestrial eating fish in with streamer eating fish. Yes. When you're looking at the average size, especially when it comes to wild fish, you know, they, uh, they get excited over a big bug a lot more than they will over a lot of everything else. So I tell you what I like to do. You talk about walking through the grass. There was a time, uh, oh, this has been several years ago that I rolled up to a gas station to get gas before I was supposed to meet somebody. And there was a mm-hmm. green grasshopper on the gas pump. And I'm sitting there looking at it. And I'm pumping my gas, $26, $27, $28. And I'm just looking at this grasshopper going, man, I think I've got some green grasshoppers about that same size. So while I'm pumping gas, I go back and dig out the box. And it just sits there the whole time. And I'm like, yep, that's perfect. And we caught a fish on a green grasshopper that day. Yeah, Only because yeah, I saw oh, yeah. it. Evidently, that trout came out of that same gas station that day and said, I'm going to eat one of those. I'll see <laughs> it later, you know? Yep. So oh, yeah. So it's, it's not, it's like it, it, we joke, it's scientific. It's not. I mean, you just got to look around and go, okay, well, they, this is hatching. Yeah. It's that time of year. I've, I've done that. I've seen, we don't get many of them, but I saw like, you know, hexagenia mayflies one time at a gas station around other, you know, coming off the river Yeah. and uh, kind of towards the evening. And I was like, you know what? I bet you that I could come here tomorrow night and throw hex around a little bit. I might get a fish to come eat it. Sure enough, get over there and, you know, throw like the hex that was left in my box from some trip to Michigan years <laughs> yes, before, exactly. you know, and, uh, throw a hex out there and catch a brown trout on it you know and you sit there you go wow like you know i'm probably the only guy in the state of georgia right now trying to throw a hex at night on the tacoa river you know and catching fish on it but it'll uh yeah it's all about just watching for it but what about your what about your small streams how, how are they on terrestrials up there yeah small streams are honestly a little bit better for us on terrestrials than the tailwaters um i love fishing terrestrials on the small streams just because all of our stuff's so tight it's so wooded. It's like fishing. And I would say it's like fishing in the jungle going through there. So same thing. It's mainly beetles, but we do get a lot of hoppers on the small streams. And those small stream wild, you know, big fish are the ones that really do love that because there's such a plethora of food too. You know, you've also got, you know, like on Nuntula, you also get, it's not the exact same as the out west salmon fly, but you get a really big stone fly with a lot of orange on it that comes off on Nuntula that is as darn near any salmon fly I've ever seen. Mm. So I'm sure it's some other Eastern subspecies, but you get that. So even when you're fishing hoppers during the summer, when that's going on, you still have kind of like a smattering of big stones that are still showing up. So you're imitating really both at the same time. And, you know, you don't get those big bugs really as much in a lot of our tailwaters as we get kind of, you know, per let's say, you know, cubic foot of river as you would in the smaller streams. So fishing those small streams with the big, the big terrestrials is a lot of times a little bit more productive. Same thing, getting up underneath those limbs and everything hanging out over the tree, deep pools, that kind of stuff. They will come out of those, that deep water that maybe we were talking about before. I wouldn't fish as much. I'll slap a terrestrial <laughs> down in there and just kind of see what happens. But generally I'm still looking at those runs. I'm still fishing close to the bank and the runs. And I'm fishing in places where you might normally not fish. The great thing about throwing a terrestrial or even a dry is you're not going to get hung on the bottom. So a lot of times the water that looks like it's only eight inches deep, I'll throw one in there and you'll be surprised at a lot of the water that you'll catch terrestrial eating fish on, especially if they're feed in on them. And there's no real good way to show up to a stream and be like, oh, fish are feeding on terrestrials today. You know, they're not going to be rising to 
a beetle hatch or something like that. Right. But you just got to go out there and throw it a little bit and you'll find out fast, you know, you'll find out in an hour if they're really eating them or not. And it's a matter of sticking with it and, uh, and going through and still doing it. But you know, if they're not keyed in on it, if I'm fishing the banks and maybe I catch one or maybe I'm catching small fish and I'm not really finding much in the ripples that are really eating that, that's when I'll tie on a dropper a lot of times and I'll fish that terrestrial with a dropper. But, you know, I can think of many days going out through there where I say, all right, you know, we're just going to go through sun's high now, or it's hot, it's been warm and we're fishing a pretty tight little small stream. So we're going to tie on a beetle. We're going to tie on a hopper an ant or whatever it is. And we're just going to go see what happens. And more often than not, you go through there and you at least move a couple fish. You'll at least smack that fly down and have a fish spin on it. Look at it, something like that enough to give you a big boost of confidence to say, all right, we're on the right track. Yeah. So. We'll stick with it. Get a little bit of action. It's okay. We can, we can go a little longer and see what happens next. Right. Right. I know that you said dry dropper with your, with your terrestrial. I totally get that. What about your dries? How, how are you, are you rigging anything special on your dries? Not necessarily like special. I would just say for the, especially the Georgia fishermen, I'll speak to the Georgia fishermen, is that you've got to realize our hatches don't work the same way as they do a lot of other places, maybe even around you in Middle Tennessee. Uh, we get about two actually distinct hatches, and that would be the Black Caddis hatch at the end of February and then sulfurs during the summer. Occasionally, we'll have PMBs, which are pretty darn similar to a sulfur. Um, that'll be like a true hatch. Aside from that, we just kind of have a mixture of bugs that show up all the time and not in any great numbers. So when you're fishing dries, I would always say to lean towards yellow, especially on the mountain streams right. and even on tailwaters as well. So, I mean, the only thing special that I do when I'm fishing is I fish a lot of caddis patterns and I fish a lot of yellow. And then if I see anything that's feeding subtly, feeding in the film or not really like doing splashy loud rises or anything like that, I'm fishing a size 18 blueing olive, maybe a 16. And that'll pretty much always get the job done. So you just got to, you got to realize that, you know, you can kind of stick with your comfort foods a little bit more when you're fishing in Georgia. You know, a lot of times throughout the Southeast, if there's not like a true hatch going on and most of the time there's not going to be a true hatch going on unless you're out there and it's, you know, you're on the Holston or you're in February and it's, you know, you're inhaling them. Yeah, but right. that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty tough thing to, pretty tough thing to hit in the Southeast. We love to talk about hatches and flies and all the different patterns that match the different hatches. And when it comes down to it, you know, we're, we're like you say, looking for the comfort foods, looking for, for something that's close to a lot of different things and not necessarily right on any one thing. Yeah. And, you know, I always get, I get pretty, you know, we get about hatches thinking about them. That's where I do like to pretend I'm more of a scientist than anything, but <laughs> you talk, you, you talk to me five years down the road and I might have a totally different opinion on it. But in reality, as the Southeast goes is uh, that's probably about as close to, you know, the honest truth as it gets, as far as, you know, the hatches go. I think there is a little bit of mystery in there. Like I mentioned hex, maybe a little bit yeah. um, or earlier, and then some guys will have stories about green drakes or brown drakes showing up around some of the places, that kind of stuff, some bigger bugs where you can kind of chase that and kind of have this mysterious hatch that brings the biggest wild fish to the surface. <laughs> but 
in reality, I think that makes a, that makes more, you know, good campfire talk than anything else, you know. Totally agree. And maybe you stumbled on something that particular day. Again, every fish in the river was eaten anyway. And if you threw a, right. if you threw the end of a shoelace down there wrapped around the hook, they'd probably eat it. And, uh, yeah. But it is fun to talk around, uh, talk about around the campfire. And, and five years from now, your answer probably will be totally different, and so will mine. Yeah, right. That's the, that's the beauty of it, you know. And in 10 years, we may come back and have exactly the same answer. You know, like I, like I said on some of the previous shows, you kind of like go around this mountain and you end up right back where you were. It's kind of like it's a cycle. Like, oh, I'm going to try yeah. this, and I'm going to try this, and I'm going to try this. And the next thing you know, you're like, hey, I did that 10 years ago. And it still right. works. Wow, what did I ever get yep. off of that for? Because somebody came along and said, try this, and it happened to work. So I don't... Yeah. There's definitely not a right or wrong answer. You'll find some people that think there's a right and wrong answer, but, you know, you might have somebody that says, well, I only fish BWOs in this particular situation. Well, you catch about 10 fish in front of them on a hopper, and they mm-hmm. will throw that BWO to the side and smash it with their boot so fast. Oh, yeah. beg you for a hopper. And I do the same thing, so... There's not really a right or wrong answer, and if you get caught in your ways too much, you kind of you can dial yourself out pretty quick sometimes too. Yeah, and I think about. I mean, you even look at somebody like Kelly Gallup. He uh, with some of his streamer stuff over the years. He literally published a book early on talking about how much he didn't like flash and streamers and how bad flash and streamers was. And then you see him come back out again. And he says, I don't think you can have too much flash and streamers, you know, make them as flashy as you can. So right. I'm like, I haven't published a book on anything. And if he did it, you know, then I think that that's a pretty good example of what we all do. It all changes. You know, you're always learning. So right back around the same mountain a lot of times. So Al wants to talk about, let's talk, let's move on to flies here. Al wants to talk mm-hmm. about the difference in flies from large trout, large wild trout to stock trout so let's start why don't we go at it at this angle daniel why don't we start with the food and then we'll work our way to the bug yep we'll do let's do tailwaters and then creeks and go by food types fly types and then also want to hit on some of the we've done pretty actually we've done pretty good so far about hitting on technique presentation that sort of thing but if you can think right. of anything that needs to be thrown in there that maybe we haven't talked about on technique, maybe we can throw that in there too. Uh, just, I just want to give us a good idea of the food, the flies, tailwaters first, then creeks, uh, and and then what what about some some extra technique in there? Because you can never have too much technique, even though we can't see it necessarily on the river. I think, yeah. you know, some talk about it and kind of spurring some thoughts for people is a good, a good thing. So, right. So let's talk about tailwaters first and let's, let's start at food and work our way to the fly. Yeah. So looking at tailwaters, as far as flies and food and all that good stuff goes, when you're looking at our tailwaters and, and the food that's in them, you do have a lot of midges, um, not maybe as much as somewhere like the Holston or the Wataga or maybe even over like around you guys. Yeah, there's a lot of midges here. That can, Right, yeah, so a lot of small stuff. I mean, we do have a lot, and when you're looking at it from a wild trout perspective, catching big wild trout, the hard part is, is uh, you know, there's some food that stalkers eat and there's some stuff that wild trout eat. And I think that a lot of wild trout do get on to that eating tons of midges in the tailwaters move there so definitely midges a lot of blooming olives and then stoneflies are just always hard to get away from every you know there's big stoneflies in the tailwaters there's going to be a lot in the creeks but there's definitely still a lot in the in the tailwaters 
and everything loves a big stonefly stocked or not so that's definitely the big one there um you know we do have a lot of caddis around us but if i was going to narrow it down into a couple things it'd be midges uh mayflies are kind of like a general thing like you know like a pheasant tail basically you know like it's a pretty general deal um you'll have caddis and then stones so basically all of them but yeah you know um (laughs) Yeah, I, I would say, though, looking at wild trout, you definitely got to play midges in there a little bit heavier than you would otherwise. Um, kind of looking at the creeks, though, it changes a little bit because the average size gets a little bit bigger. I fish more 18s and 16s in, in tailwaters, so smaller bugs in tailwaters. In the creeks, you're looking more at like 16s, 14s, and even 12s a lot of times. Um, so that's the big difference there. Even when you're looking at mayflies, stoneflies are pretty much across the board. They're pretty the same, much the same size, um, going from tailwaters to creeks. I like to fish like tens and eights that through there. I can get into fish and sixes sometimes and fours, like looking at those bigger, like I mentioned, the salmon flies that are really more in the creeks. Um, those will be, be bigger type stuff and golden stones, same thing, more golden stones in the creeks. So that you're looking at like a bigger stonefly nymph that you're fishing going through there for sure. And then caddis, really the, uh, the caddis are honestly end up being bigger a lot of times in the tailwaters um, for us, especially the black caddis. So you're looking at, we'll have like size 12 black caddis when they're coming off. So big bugs. Um, whereas, you know, usually there's 16s in the creeks especially the tan ones. They're pretty much 16s uh, most of the way across. So the caddis almost flips in size. Yeah, it does. And the caddis can vary day to day. I mean, you know, like today we showed up and there's 14s. And then I was there two weeks ago and uh, they were 18. So are are y'all skittering the caddis any? A little bit. Some. Basically like a mend does all the skittering that I like. So, you know, just like a little bit of movement sometimes, especially if I'm fishing something with some rubber legs on it, like a caddis with a, with a set of legs on it. I'll fish that sometimes and give it a little bit just to move those legs. Do you fish legs a lot? Uh, yeah, I do fish legs a lot because I think it, I think it carries over to that terrestrial bite. I think you're right. And it's interesting that you said that we're on this because I've got a friend that went over there and he came back and said, dude, they, those guys, he said, well, he's older. He said, them boys everything they fish has a leg on it <laughs> and i don't know if you i don't know if everything you fish has a leg on it but that's that's the one thing that he remembered that out of the whole trip was everything he put on my on my tippet had a leg on it and it was kind oh of, i love a leg yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i mean i don't care what it is you know pheasant tail prince nymph here's your some legs on it yeah. probably catch a few more you know <laughs> So the the only thing I don't fish with legs is I got into fishing the Paragons a lot and a lot of the Euro style nymphs. Uh-huh. Um, and I'll fish those in runs where I really want to get down fast and yeah. keep that fly in the zone longer. Yeah. Legs drag a lot. So, you know, that's a, that's a tough one there. Um, I don't fish those on that obviously, but yeah, besides that, I love, I love some legs. <laughs> that's, so. that's so funny. Oh, that's great. Sorry. I, I, I cut you off and you were in the middle of making a point, but. I just I had to let you know that that that's that's kind of a kind of a thing down yeah, there. That, that a thing, yeah. Yeah, that's what y'all are y'all are not all you're known for, but boy, that's a big one in in our little <laughs> our little yeah. circle. Rubber <laughs> leg guys. Let's talk about your best answer for dries. What's your what's your best dry? So if I threw out there and and I don't I don't mind telling you mine either. 
On tailwaters, I like uh, a pheasant tail dry, believe it or not. And streamers, okay. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan, and I'm I'm bouncing back and forth here. If you listen to one episode, I'm like, ah, yeah, throw a zoo cougar on there on sinking line. I love those. The next yeah. the next one was put three woolly buggers on there on a floating line, <laughs> you know, and then right. So I, I'm I'm one of those two, and then nymphs is usually a a pheasant tail nymph, but I'm kind of starting to get into princes again. And then some stonefly stuff, a little bit of it, not a ton of stoneflies. But so let's talk about yours, your best answer for dries on the tailwaters and then on, on on creeks. As far as patterns? Yeah, you get one fly for, let's take one fly for tailwaters and then one fly, one dry for tailwaters and one dry for creeks. And you don't have to give size or anything. I'm just really looking for patterns. I would say my favorite dry pattern for the tailwaters would be a quill body blue wing olive with a CDC wing. So no question about it. And it's funny, we've been talking about some of these bigger flies, but that's always the one, if there's a rising fish eating whatever size fly, I could pretty much always get him to eat a quill bodied, pretty sparse blue wing olive dry. So, you know, little, little, uh, little tail off the back, not too much, just a quill and some dubbing and a CDC wing. Not a ton to so. that. Don't forget that your competition's probably listening to this too. So don't give away everything. No, <laughs> I'm still holding, I'm holding back. Okay, on good. You. Yeah. Good. I, okay. Yeah. I know they're listening. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think that one's, if that's a, if that's a secret, that's a pretty poorly kept, you know, so yeah. Oh. Yeah. So that was tailwaters? Yeah, so that's okay. tailwaters. And then creeks. Looking at my favorite drives for fish in the creeks would definitely be a yellow rubber leg stimulator. Oh, nice. So yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So not, you know, it's pretty standard fare there, you know, but like creek wise, yellow rubber leg stimulator, that's always a good one. Maybe I really do love fishing like the size 16 and 14, like little bitty chubby chernobyls as well i love throwing those especially black with the tan body you get that kind of caddis and ant look on it going through there so that's a great great one as well as really small chubbies are uh, are pretty fantastic and you get more rubber legs there's like eight rubber legs on that thing so oh, it's gonna catch yeah. all sorts of fish yeah, yeah. there we, here we are with rubber legs again how about uh, yeah you got rubber legs on your streamers too oh you better believe i do yeah <laughs> kidding me look a rubber band man in my basement here you know time flies <laughs> what uh, what about your favorite uh tailwater streamer i think you kind of hit on this a little bit earlier but you get one pattern for the for the tailwater uh some guys may know about it. I, I started tying a fly a couple years ago which is basically like a kind of an accidental knockoff of a polar fiber game changer that mm. i called the milkshake yeah because it brings all the boys to the yard so you know <laughs> you got the milkshake which which is basically like a shad pattern, you know, it's a, like a, you know, it's four sections. So, you know, got, got a two hooks and, and usually two shanks. Sometimes I'll throw in a third shank, but usually four sections. Um, and it's a, a, a white real weightless tied, uh, you know, shad pattern with a fish gull head on it mm. that you can fish great on an intermediate line, even during generation that, the whole goal was to make it fish like a zoom fluke, you know, to have something that's just going to kind of ride the current a little bit and, you know, kind of go from side to side and 
have a little bit of a, you know, walking the dog action to it kind of deal. So that's probably my favorite. I do like Tommy Lynch and Strunk and Disorderlies a whole lot too. Um, hard part with those is that if, uh, if you don't tie them right or you don't get them from somebody that has them tied right, uh, they can spin real bad on you. It's a tough fly to nail. So if I'm tying them, I usually tie them on a straight shank hook. I don't tie them on a jig hook just because that little Rapala lip head that he does in his to make him dive is a tough one to nail. So I'm not, I'm not the, not the greatest with deer hair when it comes to it. So I, uh, I end up having to cheat a little bit, heel weight them a lot or something like that to get them to ride straight. So, and they have a, I mean, it's packed so hard. I mean, it's so tight in there. The pack, the head's packed so tight. It's just, if you don't do it all the time, it's just tough. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. And I was, yeah. I was talking to Matt Milner on the last, it was the last episode, episode actually. And he's into this Andreas Anderson. Uh, it's very similar to the drunken disorderly, but it's, it's, oh yeah. It's a good looking fly. Can't, the un, unholy diver, holy, di, unho, un, unholy diver. Can't say it. Yes. Yeah, um, that guy is probably one of the best deer hair tires yeah, around for sure. Yeah. I think that I think that that fly pattern he tied definitely, um, you know, could be traced back to the drunken disorderly yeah. for sure. Yep. And I kind of wrap a lot of those patterns up in that that kind of, like, I guess that same sort of vein as the drunken disorderly for sure. Um, but that that one's really good. That guy's doing some crazy stuff with deer hair and making some good flies. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm. I keep saying I'm going to order some for winter, but it's not close to winter yet. So I still got a little time. Okay. And then your nymphs, you said you like, you like rubber legs on those as well. Is that, is that on tailwaters and and creeks? Yeah. It's a little bit more creeks and tailwaters for sure. I fish a little bit slimmer stuff sometimes on the tailwaters, you know, just kind of trying to imitate those midges or uh, smaller mayflies. Um, you know, they don't have quite as the pronounced legs, but, uh, you know, we always joke amongst ourselves that if you're not, don't have a patch rubber legs somewhere <laughs> on your rig, you're probably doing it wrong. You right, know? Right. So, yeah. So, so I always, I always, I always joke about the guys that fish with me a lot. I always give me a hard time about this. Like, really fish with this every time. Like, yeah. And they eat it every time too, you know? So it's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to get away from it. So that's hilarious. <laughs> Oh, uh, so this one last question here that I've got, this is David's question. What question did we not ask that would be helpful for the, for the angler? Ooh, I think that one question, I don't know if it's necessarily a question, but it's one tidbit of information that's helpful for the angler that I would say to know. That's really interesting too, especially for a lot of guys that are chasing, you know, truly big wild trout is you got to think about migratory patterns just a little bit too when you're thinking about bigger trout because they behave differently than your normal trout in that way, especially browns. So if you're fishing a piece of water that feeds into something else like a lake or a bigger river, whatever it is, something where you have the ability to fish to go up and down in a, in a river system, especially where the lower end is still in that sub 70 degree water temperature range, um, you really want to start thinking about patterning fish on water temperature. Um, that's one thing we've kind of been dialing in and it takes a while to dial in. That's like a year kind of devoted to looking at it, or at least a hard season, you know, poured into fishing those fish, but watching those fish as they move up 
in the river. One big misconception in the South is that our fish spawn in October, November, like they do in Montana. <laughs> and in reality, they spawn in December and January, at least for us. So, you know, those fish aren't going to be high up in those water systems, you know, the river systems trying to start spawning uh, until much later in the year. So you can't really expect to have that bite until later in the year. Whereas in the summer, maybe you'll have some fish that'll move up in the summer looking for cooler water for sure. Usually those are going to be bigger wild fish. They're going to be like 18 to 20 range, but you're not going to get a whole lot of two footers that you can really pattern as much on that kind of kind of bite during the summer. That's more going to be a winter thing for them around us. Um, but definitely pay attention to that, you know, pay attention to, to the way they migrate. And I would say even focus on water pieces of water more that have the potential for that kind of you know movement up and down just because you will have the a lot more potential for a really big fish you know two foot better fish that can live in that kind of that kind of system for sure and piggyback on that and then we'll i'll wrap it up here but uh the body of water you're fishing is a huge part of it not every bit body of water is going to be able to support trophy wild fish and that's a big thing. So don't get all hung up on devoting, you know, a lot of time to fishing one thing. You know, it's good to, to learn a river and it's good to learn a system. But until you have a little bit of proof of those bigger wild fish, I'd be careful about, you know, being married to one piece of water for sure. Good advice right there. Very good advice. I think I would add, and this goes for David too, just because you don't catch the biggest fish in the river every day doesn't mean that you're not you're not enjoying yourself you're not having a good time it is fantastic to catch a great big fish but it doesn't have to happen every day and it's not going to happen every single day it's not you Mm -hmm. could spend weeks on a river sometimes and just go through that lull of all right i just i haven't caught that really nice big fat healthy fish in two weeks Mm -hmm. or three weeks but that doesn't mean that the next time you go out that you're not going to catch it you need to figure out how do i enjoy the rest of these days too you know, maybe, yeah. maybe it's, maybe it's sometimes it's just going out and saying, yep, I'm going to go fish for that one type of fish may not be the biggest fish, but I'm going to crack a code somewhere. And that's going to be my high point of that day. And sometimes oh, it's, yeah. Hey, I caught two twenty inches in the same day. And, mm-hmm. you know, and those are great days too, but don't judge yourself by how big a fish you caught, even though that's really what this whole podcast is about. It's try yeah, to help right. you. It's try to help you, but you got to keep things in perspective too, and that's sometimes easier said than done. And you can't fish like that every single time. Everything we've talked about in this podcast with big wild fish, I you know I love it. It's my favorite way to fish. But even when I go out, this isn't how I fish every single time when I go out. And I think that you would probably go nuts, and you probably wouldn't have a ton of success. I mean, based on the number of times you're going out fishing, so. You definitely, I would say there's times when you go out and you're fishing for those bigger fish and you're throwing terrestrials up underneath trees and pounding the banks and knocking on doors with big bugs and streamers and uh, going to that water that you know, hey, might have some big fish in it, but maybe doesn't have the same fish per mile as somewhere else that I could go. Um, And then you have other days when you walk out and you go, you know what, like, I just need to catch a fish today. And uh (laughs) There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So that is so so true. I see a lot of people that come and they start fishing for those bigger fish, and the next thing you know, they're playing golf because they yeah. just couldn't catch enough of them to keep themselves satisfied. 
So they're like yeah. moving on from thing to thing. And, and some of them I'm still friends with and they play golf yep. today. They don't fish, you know, maybe once a year and that's fine. Yeah. But I just think, man, if you just would have enjoyed those 20 fish days that you would have or 30 fish days and they were all, you know, 10 to 14 inches, but you couldn't figure yeah. out how to enjoy that. And that's just, it's just a tough one. It just is. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I would like the best well wish that I could wish every fly angler out there is to never get tired of a 10 inch fish. Yeah. Just eating a dry fly, you know, oh. eating a dry fly is a 10 inch fish, you know, just yeah. never get tired of that. Cause I don't care who you are. It's always fun to watch a fish take a fly off the surface, you know. My favorite saying is, we're catching these little fish so you're ready when the big one comes. Yes. You, know, you got your hook set down, you got your cast down, you got your presentation down, got a little bit of fight in some of them, and you're yeah. bringing them to the net. You know when to raise the rod tip. You know when to raise your arm to get it up. You know to stop stripping line when you get to the knot. All those little yeah. things. Those, those smaller fish prepare us for those bigger fish. Absolutely. So got to keep that in mind, and sometimes that's easier said than done, too. Well, so we talked about the Tacoa, the Soquee, the Noontula Tootla Creek. That's maybe the hardest creek in the world to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the Tuck. We talked a little bit about the Tuck in some of our tailwater discussion. If you're looking for a guide who's going to help you learn and have fun on the water, and that's one of the things that I got from your website. It seems like y'all have a good good time. And, yeah, and I'll have to say you're a laid back dude. You've been super, super easy to work with, and man, I do appreciate that. It's it's been it was easy to set up this this thing we talked when you were on, uh, the first time on your way back from the river. And the little things are what I look look for. And you're like, I'm on my way back from the river, and I'm going to lose you. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but she said, yeah. I'm going to lose you through this part. And and sure enough, you know, uh, thirty seconds later, a minute later, couldn't hear you. The phone hang up. You call right back. I was like, okay, he's made this trip a time or two, you know, to know yeah. where those. So the little things that you look for to understand that, all right, this dude, he likes to fish because it was your day off, uh, which, yeah, which is yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. So you do the you do the same things on your day off that I do. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. So if you're looking for a, a, a good guide and, and a good dude, fishy dude in, in uh, North Georgia and Western North Carolina, Daniel Bowman at Bowman Fly Fishing, you can find Daniel at www.com bowmanflyfishing.com uh at bowmanflyfishing on instagram bowmanflyfishing on facebook i think your answers today dude were really good this will probably be one of those episodes that somebody listens to and bookmarks and remembers and when they get ready to go fish maybe north georgia western north carolina but maybe even their home waters that some of the things that you said i know are going to work at more than just in just north georgia and just western north carolina they're going to work at a lot of other places your midge your midge qu- answers to the questions were a lot of that stuff we do here. You know, yeah. we're, we're what three, probably three and a half hours of three, three and a half hours apart. So, yeah. Oh yeah. I I say I knew a lot of that'd be the same too because like a lot of the, a lot of me like when I talk about fishing big midges, you know, midges for big fish or targeting wild fish. A lot of that I learned from guys that fish in your neck of the woods, or I learned from guys up in East Tennessee, that kind of stuff. You know. So I always say, you know. It's what I do around here, but in reality, came you know who knows where it comes from, but well, and the same thing applies to West to to Arkansas because I just got off a off a uh, podcast with with Arkansas, the little red and the white, and yeah. a lot of the same a lot of the same midge discussion that we had on the podcast and before and after we talked for a long time, 
before and yeah. after about a lot of things and, and a lot of the same things that you're saying and I'm saying they're saying mm-hmm. too. So it's, it's all useful information. You just, just got to figure out where and when to use it. But uh, I appreciate you stopping by Daniel. If you find value in the Southeastern fly podcast, check out the merch at southeasternfly.com forward slash store that supports the podcast. Thanks to all the folks that have already stopped by and, and, and supported the show through the merch. Uh, it's very much appreciated. Thanks to the podcast group who really came through on these questions and kind of they guide they guide the podcast now. I get I get a little bit of input on it, but I think I lean on them quite a bit. Uh, they come up with the with the topics. They come up with the questions. I get to throw some of the things that I want to know uh, about in there, like that last question that we talked about. Just a really good, Daniel, this is a really good, really good episode right here. I think it's going to be a good one for the listener. Appreciate you stopping by and talking with us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed talking to you. It's been a, uh, it's been a blast being able to talk fishing and yeah, kind of, kind of compare some notes and, and, and have a, uh, have a good discussion here. So. Most of all, thanks to the listener. Thank you for joining us on Southeastern Fly. I enjoyed it. You have fun editing this one. This one went a little long. So it, you have a lot oh, it, of that's well, not terrible. It's no, not, it's not bad. But yeah, we didn't start till about eight-ish, somewhere around eight, did we? I tell you, it's interesting. Whenever you, whenever you popped on there, yeah, he was sitting on a porch whenever we did one of the episodes, and it looks this. I swear, it, really? it looks the okay. same. I was like, is he over at Jimmy's house? Yeah. <laughs>